Support for Market Foolery comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/fool. It's Tuesday, June 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and I am joined in studio by Motley Fool analyst Matt Argersinger and David Kretzman. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, hey. Mac. How you feeling? Feeling good. 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 Caps are on the verge. Caps are on the verge. For those of you not following the NHL playoffs, mm. that's our Washington Caps. They're getting close to winning the Stanley Cup. I have to admit, I'm about a once every 20 year hockey fan, and I've, and I've been watching it. <laughs> this here. is one of the 20 years. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, the thing that amazes me is they are doing all of that while skating. Yes, that's true. And I, you know, I've lived in DC for about 15 years, and I really never thought that any in any time living here that we'd see like a parade. And it's we're this close. Isn't it incredible? So, I'm gonna jinx it though. <laughs> Ovechkin. That's all you have to know. Yeah. If you don't know anything about hockey, just say Ovechkin or Ovi, right? Ovi. Okay. Yeah. Ovi. I have God. no idea what you're talking about. But he's great. <laughs> Go he, with it. He's the best. He's player. a player. He's Got really it. good. Okay. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about some other action going on. Um, we're going to talk about Twitter joining a very exclusive club. Twitter on quite the roll lately, so we'll get to that. And then, Matt, I know you think there's an area of the market that's underappreciated, undervalued. Oh yeah, and we're going to get to that. Oh yeah. But let's begin with Starbucks. Big news here: shares down a bit on Tuesday on news that Chairman Howard Schultz is stepping down. David. When we think Starbucks, we think Howard Schultz. He's been with the company for 36 years. He was CEO from 1987 to 2000, and then he was CEO again from 2008 to 2017. And for those of you scoring at home, 11 stores in the 80s. So Starbucks had 11 stores. Today, 28,000 stores in 77 countries, market value of around $78 billion. David, you're a shareholder. I am. How are you feeling about Howard Schultz stepping down? I'm actually feeling good about this. I think, in comparison to last decade when he basically stepped back from you know his day to day activities with the company, I think the company is in stronger shape today, competitively, financially. I mean, this is a company generating close to three billion dollars in free cash flow annually. Still, a lot of expansion opportunities around the world. They're continuing to make progress with things like food and ice beverages and the the premium roastery and uh, reserve brands. So, all in all, I think Starbucks is a nicely diversified company. A lot of expansion opportunities. I think uh, new CEO Kevin Johnson over the past couple of years has shown that he he really appreciates the soul of Starbucks, and obviously that's something unique to Schultz and the culture he created with the company. But I think uh, the the team at the helm they they certainly don't want to go through uh, what happened to Starbucks a decade ago when when Schultz kind of took a step back from the company. The company really just lost that focus on the culture and the ethos that was so critical to differentiating themselves from you know McDonald's or the the other you know coffee providers out there. So all in all, I think the company is still in good shape. And I, I continue to be a happy shareholder. Yeah, to borrow something from Warren Buffett, I really think Howard Schultz kind of he made the you know he made the snowball, and it's just it's just rolling down the hill right now. And I think Kevin Johnson is uh, you know is, is is running with it. And I think by all accounts, the the culture that Schultz has established, especially the momentum they have in China, is just a great handoff. And I, I don't see how the business uh, significantly slows down now that 
Schultz is stepping down. I think he's uh, he, he set the, the baseline that the company is running with, and it, sh- it should do just fine. And guys, what what strikes me? Um, I started the Motley Fool back in 1998, and um, Tom and David interviewed Howard Schultz on our then radio show, our AM radio show, um, that year, and he had just written this book, "Pour Your Heart Into It," and he he was. Even back then, he was about something bigger. I mean, this idealism, um, you both alluded to the fact that, that really Schultz has this reputation as being incredibly social respons- socially responsible. Um, his idea that the CEO should be a moral leader, and one quote jumped out at me. He said he wanted to achieve, quote, the fragile balance between profit and conscience. Don't don't hear a lot of CEOs <laughs> saying anything quite like that, but I think most of us here at the Fool, probably all of us, I, I hope most or all of us uh, are, are fans of that idea of conscious capitalism, where it's not all about maximizing profits, but in the long run, you're actually probably going to be better off if you're trying to uplift all your stakeholders, whether it's you know the environment, community, shareholders, uh, employees, customers, all the different stakeholders in there. And I think Starbucks, uh, thanks to to the vision of Howard Schultz, was really ahead of it. It's time uh, by adopting that kind of mindset. Really, uh, as soon as Howard Schultz stepped into uh, to the leadership role at the company, and that, that's also why I'm optimistic about the company going forward. I think they have the valuable experience of going through a leadership transition that didn't go all that well last decade. So I think Schultz and everyone else involved on the board and uh, you know executive management. I, they, they've known this was coming for a while. Schultz, I think last year he informed the board, like, "Yeah, I want to continue to." Basically, take a step back from the company. So, got to think they've worked through a lot of the scenarios. I think Kevin Johnson has proven uh, with his response to the the incident in Philadelphia last month that if anything, the company is overcorrect, overcorrecting, and now allowing anyone to, to, to use the Starbucks bathroom, if even if they're not you know a, a customer. So, I think the social conscience of Starbucks continues to to be in good shape. Yeah, I mean, if you need an example of a company that can, that creates tremendous value for shareholders while doing all these things, while Paying employees very well, uh, you know, doing the best you can for customers, uh, being good on the environment, being socially conscious, and, and investing in your community. Starbucks is the greatest example, and so I hope it's an example that other corporate leaders can take and say, "We don't have to have a business," as David said, totally geared towards maximizing profits. While that's important, mostly for shareholders, I think it's uh, there's a lot of ways to create value, additional value for your brand, uh, for your company by doing all these other things as well. And, and no one has probably proven that better than Howard Schultz. Okay, so let's. Get to the elephant or the donkey, if he's a Democrat <laughs> or Republican, <laughs> nice, in the room. Nicely done. Thank right. you. Nicely done. Is Schultz? Do we have any doubt that he's running for president? Very little. Yeah, I think he's running. Almost, almost guaranteed. He won't say it, but he is I was, running. Right. I was probably 50-50 going into. The, even going into last night today, and then he he gave a couple of interviews earlier today, uh, one with Andrew Ross Sorkin of CNBC, which I thought was great, and and yeah, I think I think there's a little doubt now that he's he's going to be pretty engaged in public life, uh, you know whether that necessarily leads to a presidential run, I think it does, but you know he he's going to be out there, he's going to be a candidate of some kind. I think I'm going to tiptoe through the policy here because we're not a political show. Okay, whatever you think about the current occupant of the White House, <laughs> I think he's been fairly successful at branding. Both building a brand and branding others. So I just I think it would be a fascinating debate if you have Schultz and Trump, and you have Trump saying basically, "What do you know about building a global brand?" Yeah, there you go. I think Schultz has a pretty good answer. Yeah, a point. very good answer. <laughs> yeah. I will be fascinated. I, I bet. I bet. I bet he'll get a nickname in the next few days. <laughs> right, and I, I'll see, yeah, so, yeah, we'll see what Trump Trump tweets. But I, I think Trump needs to get a little credit here because. 
he did break the mold in this way, in the sense that a, a non-establishment politician, yep. you know, mostly, uh, and a businessman from the business world can be the president of the United States. And I think that's interesting that we here we are, the United States of America, we're probably the bastion of capitalism, and we really haven't traditionally had a business leader, uh, certainly a person who spent most of their career in business, Arise to that level uh, until Trump, and so you know I think he's opened the door in a lot of good ways. Yeah, and and this morning, Matt, we were talking. Schultz giving interviews, talking about the debt and the deficit. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I haven't heard that in a while. That's I mean, right. that's that's like Ross Perot speak. <laughs> Thank goodness. So you have to go back a while, and 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 it and it is worth noting that the guy Schultz's story is amazing. I mean, he grew up. Dirt poor in New York, so that'd be the other thing. You'd have two New Yorkers fighting it out. Um, first guy in his family to go to college, and we're talking. If you want to win a bar bet this weekend, if you want to impress your friends, or if you need a pickup line, if you're just desperate for a pickup line, go up to someone and say, "You know, Howard Schultz isn't the founder of Starbucks, right, Matt?" Right. That's right. It's it's for some reason the the media or certainly the 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 conventional wisdom gets is getting this wrong and 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 the media. Gets it wrong many times. He is not actually the founder of Starbucks. He joined the company. I want to say the company, the first store opened in like 1971, you know, in Seattle, and it was 13, 12, 13 years before I think Schultz even joined the company. And he came in as an investor and as a person who wanted to, and who was kind of involved in the marketing. Now he built the company to where it is today. There is no doubt about that. So the, the Starbucks that you see today, which is a global dominant, you know, retail concept, that of course he founded that. But he did, he is not the founder of Starbucks. I yeah, mean, if, if that's not a conversation starter, I, mean, I don't know uh, what is. And the first uh, <laughs> the the first coffee concept, at least on the West Coast, was Pete's, uh, which now is a much smaller company. I remember. That's right. Ten years ago or so, like there, you know, we had people on our discussion boards, you know, comparing Pete's Coffee versus Starbucks. And I think at the time, Pete's was a five hundred million dollar company or so. They ended up getting bought out. But anyway, yeah, in its current form, Schultz, I think it's fair to say he's a founder. But if you're getting technical, that's yeah. good, good bar bet. One, one good last thing. I was talking to Chris Hill uh, this morning, actually. You know, Chris, Chris and I are both from New England. Yeah. And so we were thinking, you know, hey, Schultz could make a good, good presidential candidate. But you know, I don't know if, how well he's going to do in like the New England states. You know, you got. The yeah. Dunkin' Donuts. That's a good choice. Uh, yeah. Which is just the loyalists. Right. And, and that's one of my, you know, I, I, I like Starbucks. I'm not a shareholder, but one of my biggest beefs with Starbucks is I do find it a bit pretentious to have to learn a different language just to order my coffee. <laughs> so here's what I want I want to go in and say basically, I want a small, a medium, a large, or a jumbo. That's what I want. That's right. I, I mean, and I know it's this Italian vibe or whatever, but don't give me the venti stuff. So that's where I'm more Team Duncan. That's and I right. think that if he's going to run for president, if Schultz is going to run, you can't be using the word venti. You cannot. Do we agree? Maybe that'll be his nickname, something with uh, you know making fun of the the Starbucks oh, lingo. Oh, that's true. There he is. Yeah, that's true. Trump's got to be thinking of something now. Oh, yeah, he's working on it. I'm, I'm starting. <laughs> I'm starting the clock on the nickname. I think. I think by Saturday we'll have one. <laughs> Okay, guys. Well, let's switch gears and talk Twitter. Shares of Twitter hitting a three-year high on news that is being added to the S&P 500. It will replace Monsanto. Matt, what does that mean for investors? Well, it it, it doesn't really mean much, uh, except that Twitter, by being added to the S&P 500, is getting a big boost, because that means, now going forward, uh, ETFs, index funds, who track the S&P 500, are essentially forced to buy shares So, that's something. You no, it, it doesn't mean well, much. It, that's a big boost. It doesn't mean much for the business or anything okay, long term. Okay. But no, it, it, hey, index representation, it's always a great thing to do. I mean, it, it certainly means that you've risen to somewhere as a corporation. That you're, and it's, you know, it's kind of prestigious to be added to the S&P 500. Uh, but Twitter, in general, I mean, this has just been, uh, over the last 
last, I want to say, 12 to 18 months. It's been a tremendous run for this company. And I, you know, all credit to uh, you know Jason Moser, our uh, our podcast uh, colleague, because you know he he's really the one when uh, when we're running million dollar portfolio and elsewhere, but just really pounding the table and saying, you know, this you got to think bigger, long longer term about this this platform and what it means. And I think now, uh, you know, the, I think the momentum is is really justified. I mean, you have a business I think that. Uh, from, you know, certainly from an active user base is gaining a lot of momentum, and then I think from we're going to learn pretty soon from a ad buying perspective. I think whether you call Facebook a the fallout, whatever happened to Facebook a fallout or whatever, but I think there is some market share gains being had by Twitter, especially not just with what happened to Facebook, but how Facebook's kind of changing the way it approaches its its social network. You know, emphasizing friends, family, relationships, less news, media. And I think Twitter has just been the brand for that kind of engagement. And I think it's just getting increasingly more relevant. Yeah, I've got to give credit to Jack Dorsey, because he's really turned around the sentiment at the company. And it's interesting, because if you actually look at the statistics financially, you know, from like a revenue or free cash flow perspective, Twitter hasn't actually gained that much ground over the past year. So, over the past year, the stock is up about 118%. Revenue is just up 4%. Free cash flow is up 14%. So the stock has more than doubled, even though the financial performance really hasn't changed meaningfully. So this is really just a case where investors are willing to give, basically assign a premium valuation to Twitter, which they hadn't been willing to do for three years. Right, right now, the uh, the price to sales ratio is about 11.6. And that that's really just bringing it back to where it was toward the end of 2015. So this is really just a case where investors, I think, are getting comfortable with the narrative that Dorsey and company are telling with with uh, the company, and they're willing to, uh, you know, assign a higher valuation that they hadn't been willing to in a while. And guys, we got a, an email on um, the subject of Twitter and the index. Um, it begins with Twitter being added to the S and P. Isn't the S and P now too tech heavy? Also, isn't there a financial requirement to just be listed on the S and P? With everyone taking Warren Buffett's advice and just investing in the S and P. I'm just afraid that if anything happening, uh, if anything happens in the tech sector, everyone's investment would plummet. Can you recommend any other indexes, ETFs, or mutual funds to diversify one's portfolio? Thanks, Walter. Um, he also says that he loves the show. Thank you, Walter, and thanks for listening to the show. So, what about that? Is the S and P too tech heavy? And let's let's tackle this. Sure, sure. Well, thanks, Walter, for the the great set of questions. Because I, uh, yeah, I mean, so if you look at the S and P 500 today, right now, uh, the index is about 26% tech. The technology sector is roughly 26% of the index. That's by far the biggest, uh, the largest sector. Um, you know, the next, uh, sorry, my computer's acting funny right now. Okay, the next second highest sector is financials at 14%, healthcare at 14%, and consumer discretionary at 13%. So you've got this big tech sector that's gobbling up, you know, more than a quarter of the index. But Step back for a moment, and if you dig into the details behind that, it gets a little, a little more interesting. For example, let's just start with Twitter. Is Twitter actually a tech company? Is Facebook a tech company? I tend to look at those companies and say, you know, maybe they're more media, entertainment, that kind of thing. I mean, why are people engaging? I mean, there's a lot of technology behind the platforms, but I think, you know, it's it, you can you can ask the question right there. Uh, looking at, for example, look, digging more into the technology sector, Mastercard, Visa, PayPal. Are in the tech sector of the S and P as well. Mm-hmm. Now, PayPal might make a little sense, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Mastercard, Visa. I think if you ask most investors, they'd probably say, you know, that sh- shouldn't those be in the financials uh, yeah. sector? Uh, and then here's another interesting one: Amazon uh, is not in the tech sector of the S and P. It's actually in the consumer discretionary part. It's in the retail subsector. Uh, so that kind of makes sense to me. But then eBay, 
is in the technology sector for the S&P. So, Walter, my point here is being is I wouldn't get too hung up on these sector weightings. I think there's a lot of nuance, uh, you know, that goes into how these how these companies get categorized. And so, you know, tech sector being 26% of the S&P, you know, if you really dig in, there are a lot of what I would call non-tech companies that are actually part uh, of that weighting. And how about the financial requirement? He asked about is there a financial requirement to be listed on the S and P? There is. Uh, so if you know, I, I looked at. I mean, I don't know all the the requirements, but for one of them is a market cap of at least five point three billion. I'm sure that's kind of going up. You know, every year uh, you have to be headquartered in the U.S. Uh, most of the outstanding shares for the business have to be held in public hands, so they can't be privately held or held by insiders. Uh, and I think there's a there's some requirement that you, it's either six months or a year after a company IPO. So a company can't IPO and then the next day get it out to the S and P. There has to be some amount of time. And there are a few other requirements uh, that I that I can't list off the top of my head. And then any recommendations for um, other indexes, ETFs, or mutual funds? Well, sure. I'd say Walter. You know, uh, one one place to start. You know, if you if you like the S and P five hundred and what that offers you, look at the we'll look at our ticker RSP. That's the S and P five hundred equal weight ETF. So you're not you're not overweight. The tech sector, for example, you're equal weighting all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. It's a very, you know, a very cheap ETF, as you might imagine. It's RSP. Uh, actually, and if you go back to about 10 years, uh, the RSP has actually outperformed SPY, which is the, you know, the popular traditional S&P 500 ETF. So that's just one place to start. And guys, before we get to our last story, I want to mention that support for Market Foolery comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Well, Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. That's not a word, guys, that we hear about the mortgage process. Simple. No, it's very complicated. Well, Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. And guys, let's wrap up. We've just had our big annual member meeting. And so, first, I want to give a shout out to our listeners, to our members. Uh, we had so many great conversations. I, I, I hesitate to name names. I'm going to name Richard and Joni in North Carolina, for starters, <laughs> and then all the other great listeners who came up and, and talked to us and told me that they listened to the show while they were walking their dog or taking a long run. And, and I just want to say thank you to all of our loyal listeners and our members. Um, it is an absolute joy, and I mean that in, in all sincerity. Um, it's a joy, and, it, and it's a privilege to get to do this show um, for all of our members. So, first of all, just a shout out to all of you. Absolutely. And, um, and Matt, along those lines, I know last week at our member event, you were talking about some stocks, maybe not the sexiest stocks, no, but stocks that were a little unloved, a little unappreciated, not necessarily big tech names, but some stocks that you think may. Present opportunities for investors. Yeah, actually, you know, we just talked about the uh, you know technology sector and financials and things like that. Well, you know, if you look at banking, so I know banks aren't exactly you know we don't talk a lot about banks on this show. They're not exactly I mean, you know they're not really represented in stocks that we follow or recommend here in the unloved. full universe. Very unloved, very unheralded. Wells, Wells Fargo. Yeah, Wells Fargo. Right. Oof, so, boy. Uh, <laughs> but but I presented this at, at Full Fest. I think it's 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 interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to us, to at least some of our listeners. But um, there are almost five thousand banks in the U.S. Five thousand separate banking companies, uh, FDI insert 
FDIC insured institutions here in the U.S. Uh, it's a huge number, uh, and you compare that to say how many auto companies we have, which is you know a handful. Or how many how many big pharmacy companies that we have? It's it's a handful. Um, and so, but here we have this this industry, this banking industry that we're five. There's five thousand separate banks, and so. I started. Occurred to me a few weeks ago as I as I we heard about the the, the potential rollback of Dodd Frank and and it's not really potential. It's it's happening, and most significantly in the rollback of Dodd Frank is they're going to raise the systemically important financial institution cap, which was at fifty billion. Is wow, at 50 say billion. that again. Okay, let's systemically important financial institution cap. It's okay. it's basically the Fed's way of saying. You have this amount of assets, so you're we're gonna you have higher regulations, more scrutiny. You're subject to those annual stress tests. Okay. The cap on that was 50 billion in assets. Okay. That's going up to 250 billion, uh, and what that means is that a lot of banks now are gonna have a lot less regulation. So only if you have 250 billion in assets, you're one of say a dozen banks in the U.S. that have that amount of assets. So really, it's only about the big banks, and so now you have all the banks under that size who not only face less regulation, less costs. Have also more leniency in terms of lending and investments that they can make, and I think that's going to accelerate the amount of consolidation that we're seeing in the banking industry. If you go back just five years ago, there were six thousand banks. Today, there are five thousand. That's just five years, and so that means a lot of small, mid-sized banks are getting gobbled up every day, and so and a lot of these banks are just very undervalued by say traditional historical financial metrics, and so. Just to name a few banks that I'm looking, you know, that I've looked at that I think offer compelling opportunities: Bank of the Ozarks (ticker OZRK). Uh, there's a company called Eagle Bank Corp. Uh, (ticker EGBN). West Bank Corp. West Bank Corp. (ticker WTBA). Bank of Internet (ticker BOFI). I know these aren't very, these aren't household names, uh, but I feel like you can do, you could do a lot worse than buying either a basket or maybe a say a regional bank ETF. Um, to really capitalize on it, which I think is going to be—it's not going to be a home run trend, but I think it's a trend where you can probably make a lot of money over the next several years. I, I've tended to be more skeptical of banks, or maybe not skeptical. I just really don't know much about banks, so I've stayed away from them. And kind of tying this back to our previous conversation about the S&P 500 and index funds, the Canadian market, where I've been focusing more of my time so far this year, is dominated by the big banks. So the S&P TSX Composite, which is really the the com- comparable index to the S&P 500 just in Canada it's made up of 250 companies the same idea 250 of the bigger companies in Canada 65% of that index is made up of financials with financials being the biggest category along with energy and materials and only 4% is in technology so it's a much different landscape as far as the index goes in Canada and it's actually a similar makeup in Australia so outside of the US you have to be careful recommending people buy an ETF or an index fund because you probably don't want to have a ton of exposure to financials energy and materials which is what you would get if you bought that S&P TSX composite. So, in general, with our Canadian services, we've tended to shy away from financials and the banks, because there's already so much exposure to that in the Canadian market. So, we've always tended to to avoid that. But I'd be curious if there's any sort of similar dynamics uh, that you're talking about up in Canada, which I, I don't know, but yeah, well, to look at. And I'm glad, DK, that you brought up Canada, because I think in Canada, and you might know this, but there are only, I, I want to say there are less than 10 banks. I at think least. so. And, yeah. and so, you know, here we are in the US, and, and, and you go to most European countries, Germany, for example, there's just a handful of banks. And here we are in the US, and for some reason, we have thousands and thousands of banks. And I just feel like, 
you know, we have 5,000. Do we need five banks? Well, maybe, but I, I just feel like there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry. It's not exciting, but if you're, if you're interested in making money like I am, I think it's some place to look. Uh, and another company that sort of played into that trend um, that I, I've only looked at a little bit, but I know some analysts here follow is Q2 Holdings, which essentially provides software as a service to those smaller regional or local banks. So, a lot of different ways that you can kind of play into that. Um, that tailwind. Okay. Well, on that note, let's wrap it all up with my favorite question, my desert island, completely arbitrary, totally unfair. I don't know about your food and drink situation. What I know (laughs) is that you're on a desert island (laughs) for the next five years, and you have to buy one of these three investments, and you have to hold it. Okay, Starbucks, post Howard Schultz, who was not the founder, by the way. Um, (laughs) Twitter, or Let's say a regional bank ETF. Ah, great. Okay. Five years. Um... Well, I'll, I'll kick it off. I'm going to go with Starbucks on the off chance that the, you know. I, I think the company will continue to do well, but within five years, Howard Schultz may very well be president, and he could rescue me off the island. Wow, interesting. <laughs> that, that's a great. Wow. That's a great is, way to look is, at it. is if Howard Schultz, if 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 he got elected president, do you think does that have implications for Starbucks, either good or bad? I, I doubt it would have a dramatic impact. I think yeah. people who are, who enjoy going to Starbucks will continue to go. People who are avoiding Starbucks already probably aren't any more likely to go because Schultz is president. I think it even out. Uh, another quick take on Starbucks too. That and I, I would say there's a chance now. Now that Howard, not necessarily because Howard Schultz is stepping away, but I've always thought of Starbucks as that perfect perfect Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. Investment, maybe mm, not, maybe interesting. not, maybe not yeah. as an acqu- a total acquisition because it's a, it's a large company that would even for Berkshire that'd be taking a, a pretty big bite, but at least as a 20 percent position for Berkshire Hathaway, it just seems and maybe Buffett's always thought it's expensive, sure, but in terms of quality businesses that he's looking for, what what about okay? I want to get to your desert island. Okay, stock, well, but now that we're on that, <laughs> oh, subject, I threw a wrench about, in things. What about Costco? I mean, I always thought Buffett would yeah. want a piece of Costco, especially when yeah. he, he was allegedly trying to invest three billion dollars into Uber. So, like, if you're going after Uber, oh, I mean, yeah. start buy a few billion dollars worth of oh, Starbucks shares just, or even Costco. Seems, why not? And Costco, I agree, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, so we'll back to your back to my desert. <laughs> since you put the five year constraint on, I and. I, I'm actually I'm I'm feeling pretty good about the, the that regional banking ETF, or at least, or similarly, like a basket of say small to mid-sized quality banks. I think you can do really well. I think you'll beat the market with a package like that. So I'm I'm going there. Okay. Well, we have given you plenty to talk about. I mean, you know, if you're out and about tonight or this weekend, you can talk what regional banks. You can talk about the composition of the S and P. You can talk Canadian index funds. You can impress someone by saying Howard Schultz is not the founder of Starbucks <laughs> and how all these media outlets oh just got gosh. it wrong. That, and, so. and, and then you can blame us when you just hear the crickets. <laughs> when you just get a lot of blank expressions, you can say those guys guaranteed me that was money. I think we can drop the mic after this episode. This is right. Excellent, Matt, David. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, thanks Matt. Matt. As as always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. This show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>